Hi, and welcome to the episode where Ro and I sit in an awkward silence while we wait for Amelia to answer prompts. I'm Nato Kitch, and on tonight's episode of the Gay Arcus Yoga and Garage Cooking Association, we're looking at the exceptional film that won an Oscar over the film about white people complaining about jazz. It's Moonlight! Joining me are my two friends who represent other parts of Chiron's life. First up, she's like that one time you got your dick stuck in that hole at the cash register. It's Amelia. <laughs> Um, my name is Amelia, and uh, today I will be doing an interpretive dance portraying Chiron Kevin's Chiron Kevin's happily ever after, where they ride off into the sunset of the ocean and live the rest of their lives out in peaceful bliss. And I can be found at the Nefarious Navigator on Instagram. Next up, don't they remind you of that one time your babysitter left you and your brother at the cemetery and you, you just never saw them again? You're like, what now? I'm five. And so you walk to this house down the street crying and hoping you won't get kidnapped by the circus and your parents were really annoyed you interrupted their date because you w- were literally abandoned? It's Ro! Hi, my name is Ro, and I represent that beloved time in Chiron's life where he becomes the matriarch of his family and gathers them all together for Sunday dinner soul food. When he's told by his doctor that he's got type 2 diabetes and needs to cut back on that stuff, or else he's gonna get his leg chopped off. But Chiron says, Hell no, doctor. I'm gonna go out the same way I lived, eating pig's feet and collard greens. Wait a minute, no, that's just the plot to the movie Soul Food. I'm sorry. Why would a doctor call on a Sunday? (laughs) And you can find me on twitch.tv slash row. Moonlight is a fantastic film, and if you haven't seen it, I think we all agree you should go watch it now. But full disclosure before we start, we had some technical issues in season one, some episodes got scrapped because the audio had an issue, and unfortunately our episode on Moonlight was one of them. We had a really amazing guest on and some great conversations about their experience being queer and black, uh, but we couldn't get them back for the redo due to how little time you have while finishing your PhD. Because of that, we're going to end this episode with a collection of their thoughts from the lost episode. So anyway, spoilers ahead, here we go. So Moonlight follows life of Chiron through three acts and three points of his life, childhood, adolescence, and adulthood, as we see him grow, come to terms with his own sexuality, and find his own place and family in the world. After being chased by some bullies, young Chiron enters the life of Juan and Teresa, who give him shelter. Juan is a drug dealer who deals to Chiron's mother, but still tries to be a good father figure to Chiron due to the absence of his own father. In Chapter 2, Teenage Sharon is dealing with bullies, the further, the further downward spiral of his mother from her addiction to crack, and the death of Juan, as Teresa still welcomes him into her home. We're going to discuss that later, but the bulk of the story has Chiron reconnecting with his friend Kev, who brags so much he's not believable, and has to deal with a bully that has it out for him. Kev turns on Chiron out of fear of the bully, and aids in Chiron getting beaten badly, as the chapter ends with Chiron's arrest for taking his own revenge on the bully. Chapter 3 starts out years later. Adult Chiron is a drug dealer, his mother is in a drug treatment center, and one night he gets a call from Kev and drives to see him at a diner in Miami, and the two catch up where the, uh, with where they are in life before they go back to Kev's apartment and Chiron opens up, specifically that he hasn't really been with anyone since that night on the beach. And that's 
kind of pretty much a boring version of the movie. Uh, I tried to leave a bunch of stuff out in case you still want to go check it out. Um, which again, we've, we pretty much, you know, recommend off the bat. Uh, so yeah, what, what did y'all think of the movie? Uh, it's just about as good the second time through as it was the first. I mean, yeah, it, honestly, loved it the first time, loved it this time. It's, you know, one of those movies that I think you can watch over and over and over and you're like, Getting something new, like some new layer out of it each time that you watch it. Right. Um, <clears throat> which was kind of my experience this time around. Um, we didn't yeah. keep really meticulous notes last time we filmed this episode. Uh, yeah. It was pretty early in our podcasting careers, so um, we don't have much to go back and refer to besides some shitty audio um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's really like a good take, you know, the movie feels so natural and so real, um, in moments, it doesn't feel like overly sensationalized, like some almost Oscar winning movies I could mention. Um, and it really kind of aids the rewatchability of it. You know what I mean? Were there any things in particular that you two kind of, like, noticed uh, on your second viewing of this movie compared to the first? On that same vein, one thing I noticed this time um, was... So, yeah, this movie doesn't sensationalize things. And, like, it has a way of writing these characters where it's just, like, kind of, like showing the realities of their lives without, like, trying to drive it into your head, right? Um, like, whereas Broke Mac Mountain, like, was just really, like, driving in, you know, like, these guys are gay, these guys are cowboys, whatever. Um, this almost felt like kind of just a look in the, the regular life of, like, a gay black teen growing up in the hood, you know? Um... One thing, and I think I wrote this in my notes, but, like, one thing, for example, was the whole, like, illusion, or not illusion, that's not the right word, the, um, the reference, not reference back, I'll think of the word later, but, like, the way that they just kind of, like, showed this school-to-prison pipeline journey for Chiron between Acts 2 and 3, um, without, like, really being overly, like, rubbing it in your face about it, and, like... right. Yeah. This this movie could have easily gone into like torture porn kind of like look yeah. at these look at these sorry gay black kids and how terrible their life is and I think the fact that they didn't and tried to keep it as real as possible and make the characters as kind of fleshed out and real as possible is uh, is a credit to the movie honestly. I'm just going to be completely honest for a second. Like, I just could not get into this movie because uh, a white cornbread boy didn't come in to instill change uh, to uh, minority community. <laughs> yeah, there wasn't there enough, wasn't, there there wasn't wasn't enough gentrification boy. in this movie. Like. Cornboy from Kansas wasn't there to throw the first brick. And, and to make topple it all the about walls him of oppression, okay? And his issues. 
I don't think there was there any white were there any white people in this movie? I don't no. think so. No. Um and that is Maybe in the background in the movie. diner. I don't know. <laughs> I I don't know. I wasn't paying attention to the background. I was more focused on what was going on in the foreground. There's at least no uh no white characters with speaking roles. Yeah. yeah. No. I can say that. And I think like that's 100%. a that's another thing that's really to this movie's like plays to this movie's good points is the people like they know what the movie is about, they know who the movie is about and they're not shying away from anything and they're trying yeah. to treat everybody even like Terrell who's the high school bully they're trying to treat everybody kind of as respectfully as possible so going off of that this movie is based on an unpolished autobiographical play called in the moonlight black boys look blue and i think that image from the title really helped guide the idea of color being used uh for more emphasis in the story and along with that since it is autobiographical let's ask the question we've asked for other true stories do you think the portrayals in this film felt respectful to those that it was portraying? I think so. This movie um, felt deeply personal. Like, you can tell that this movie was written by somebody that, like, lived at least some of these experiences and that, like, truly cared for the people that, that were there during those experiences that he lived. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Um, I was reading an article about Naomi Harris, who played the mother Paula, and her experiences um, kind of opening up to the role and, like, getting over the fact that she was playing a crackhead. And they had talked about how the directors had to kind of compartmentalize because it was so much like their own relationships with their mothers that they had to, like, at the same time, compartmentalize all of that personal life stuff to focus on objectively on the movie and mm-hmm. to let that experience bleed through and inform the way that they coached the actors, in this case Naomi Harris, into getting mm-hmm. that really believable and kind of sympathetic performance. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, I you do really get the feeling that this movie is deep. And I think that's why the characters are so rounded out, too. You know, I think just when you're writing stories of any kind, right, whether it's a movie, short story, whatever, I think it's very easy and also kind of somewhat natural to fall back on stereotypes, right? Because they send all these, like, quickly easy to read messages that you don't really have to put a lot of effort oh, into yeah, like absolutely. referencing back to. It saves a lot of time in character building because yeah. you can just say, oh, this person's gay. They act such and such in such a way and you don't have to really kind of dive deep into the psyche and find out what makes them tick because you get that kind of surface level recognition. Yeah, exactly. And, like, in this movie, like, the characters aren't like that. You know, you've got a guy that's, like, a drug dealer, but also, like, super invested in, like, making sure that this kid doesn't, like, end up on the street selling crack, you know? Um, That was heartbreaking to me, the scene near the end of Act One. Yeah. When he's confronting Chiron's mother, Paula, when she's in the car with her 
with her boyfriend smoking rocks and she gets out of the car and she's like what Juan are you gonna raise my child are you gonna yeah. are you gonna raise my child you I'm buying my drugs from you are you gonna raise my child that like yeah yeah know, and it, I th- it felt so real <laughs> it did I did and it I think it also just kind of speaks to a lot of the dynamics that are kind of like you know left over from the the drug war on drugs and the crack epidemic of the 80s where like these people like are growing up in impoverished neighborhoods and don't really have much chance to like have upward mobility not to mention like you know being a person of color is criminalized in this country and so like Juan is a crack dealer but because of like the situation that he's kind of in he doesn't really have a choice is my sense of it and like he still wants to see better for like you know people like Chiron and going off of that like one interesting thing I find in this movie is uh, the depictions of masculinity um, because mm-hmm. that seems to be a big thing right now is the discussion of masculinity versus femininity uh, especially when it pertains to Sean Penn oh god sorry <laughs> um, especially when it comes to like discussions of non-traditional sexualities um mm-hmm. And a lot of people have sort of, especially like nowadays, sort of like blurred the line between masculinity and femininity, which is really great. Um, this movie focuses on masculinity uh, in two different with two different characters. The first character is one, and the other character is a bully. I always forget his name. Um, and uh, it's just two very different sort of ideas that affect Chiron in two different ways. Um, uh, do you think that this movie's portrayal of masculinity is a strong one, especially for queer adolescents? I think this movie, personally, I think it really kind of drives in this message of what toxic masculinity can do to a person. Because, like, Chiron, he grows up and he gang bangs and he pushes cracks on the street, you know, to get money and to make his ends meet. And he's kind of adopted this lifestyle that he's seen the people around him thrive in. But the movie makes it very clear that at the same time he still is very much who he was at the beginning of the movie and through all that he hasn't changed that much considerably much well you I mean he just becomes like Quan right he becomes this this guy that is oh sorry he becomes this guy that like is because of circumstance wrapped up in his life of crime because he, you know, went to prison so young through the juvenile defense system. But at the same time, he's still not, like, necessarily a bad person. Like, he's still the same, like, good, kind of super depressed, tortured kid that he always was deep down inside, you know? Um, yeah. 
Well, you see the the idea of because um, like it, just like the sort of like the positive masculinity of Juan like really rubs off on him and makes him into the character he is. But you still get the sense of the toxic masculinity that he kind of like like gives into after Juan's death. Because, like, one isn't there during his adolescence, which is kind of, mm-hmm. like, formative years. And the masculinity that he is really, like, um, getting uh, 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 exp- uh, exposure to is this really negative one from, like, the bully who, who's, like, constantly harassing him. He fi- he mm-hmm. sees, like, this sort of, like, similar light to Juan with Ke- when Kev comes along. Because, like, Kev is braggadocious, but, like, Kev is also, like, you know, kind of a sweetheart. Um, but when yeah, Kev like, turns on him... he knows Chiron and, like, has cared about him for a long time because they're yeah. childhood friends. Yeah, and when Kev turns on him uh, for, what is it, Beat Down, Stay Down? Um, yeah. Their, their mm-hmm. game, it kind of... You get the sense that some part of his view, like, his subconscious view of masculinity that he got from Juan sort of cracked a little bit. So it's, like, it's still there, but it's, like, also not the full uh, picture that it was before. Right. And, I mean, I think it's great that there are so many opportunities in the movie for Juan and his girlfriend whose name I can't remember right now. Uh, Teresa? Teresa. Teresa. Yeah, there's so many opportunities in this movie for Juan and Teresa and even Kevin at times to really, like, drive into Chiron that, like, he is an amazing human just the way he is and he doesn't have to... He doesn't have to, like, give in and let things affect him that way but of course they're going to because you know everything everything affects you in some way or another whether you know it or not and in Chiron's case it's kind of you know from all sides at all ages yeah yeah how do you think this I mean that's go ahead Oh, I was just going to say, and that's how, you know, trauma works, unfortunately. I think that was one thing I thought was really, really well written into the screenplay was kind of like this thread of trauma that happens with Chiron to where in like that third act they're even talking about, you know, oh, he doesn't really sleep and like he has night terrors or whatever. Like, yeah. Right. And they really make it a point to drive in that there's not always a resolution to that either. Yeah. Because he, in the end, doesn't really make up with his mother. There's some kind of closure, but there's definitely not any release from their It is what it is. It is what it is. Yeah. His mom will always love him, and he will always resent her for not being emotionally available when he was a child. And even with Kevin in Act 3, like, there's something there, obviously, even at the end of the movie, but Kevin has a life in Miami, and Chiron has a life in Atlanta, and, you know, there's (laughs) there's, there's no clear resolution, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There, There may be closure, but there's... 
but there's no release. I think that the thing that my only real criticism for this movie has to do with the idea that certain relationships uh, don't actually, we don't see the closure or we don't get closure or even like um, satisfying closure. And I think that's really true to reality, but it's also something that like from chapter to chapter, like chapter one to chapter two, uh, we just kind of lose Juan. Like Juan dies off screen. Chapter two to chapter three, we kind of lose Teresa. Um, and it's just like, it feels like there's not, it feels like there's not a lot of closure within the characters of this film. Maybe it's on purpose. Yeah, I think that's on purpose. And I think, I don't know, I, I, I like movies like that, that don't like have as much closure that are kind of more open ended. So <laughs> I mean, for me, is- like, I, that's one of my favorite things about this movie. It's kind of like, um, no. it reminds me a lot of No Country for Old Men, how they kill off basically the main character off screen near the end. Um, and like, I, I remember my mom when I was watching it with her distinctively saying, well, that's stupid. Um, but like, I, I feel like some of the characters, like Teresa specifically, I felt like got enough that we at least deserve like some kind of notion that things were closed and that's that's kind of cuz it's like we aren't going to get we we <laughs> the most satisfying satisfying closure we got was with the bully i think so i, feel I bad think that honestly was on True. purpose because to me it felt like it felt like going through the chapters of Chiron's life, like you're not like it is, it is very true to life. And I think it's more like these flashes of like these pivotal moments within those chapters. Right. Yeah. Like I think to me, it makes sense that like Chiron takes revenge on his bully, gets put in juvenile detention. And like from there, like he's not a kid anymore. Like he, I think, probably mentally and like through being juvenile detention like had to grow the fuck up and like all of a sudden he is kind of thrust into like this adulthood which is kind of what the movie did as well i felt like Um, by the way how awesome would it have been if that scene where he walks into the school to beat the crap out of his bully with the chair wouldn't it have been awesome if that were just one long tracking shot instead of like little cuts here and there you have to... I feel like they were moving so close to that direction that you to... could have just leaned all the way into that. You have to remember that this film had a, like a really small budget, so like they couldn't do a lot of the more impressive shots, like the one shot takes, because that would have taken a lot more planning than they had. Because this was only a one point five million dollar movie. Oh wow. They did this all on 1.5. This did not look like a 1.5 crazy. million dollar movie. This is a 1.5 million dollar movie. Brokeback Mountain was they 14. They blew it all on cinematography million. and <laughs> <laughs> they blew it all on cinematography and um oh god. They did not buy any beans and that's how they saved all of that money. <laughs> yeah. They blew it all on cinematography and hiring Naomi Harris. <laughs> yeah. 
And Mahershala Ali. And, yeah, and Mahershala and Ali. Ali. <laughs> <laughs> um, do y'all have any criticisms of this movie? I'm sure if you gave me long enough, I could think of one. You don't yeah. have to. <laughs> <laughs> the principal's acting wasn't great, as you said, so, like, yeah. that, I guess. Yeah, let's, let's, just, let's just go with that. Uh, we have a long list of pros, and on the negative side, we have the principal. Um, Who has, know, like, 30 when, seconds of screen time. <laughs> one thing I absolutely hated about this movie is how good the soundtrack is. Yes! <laughs> I hated it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, why don't you talk about it? Oh my god. So, okay, I need to go back up to my notes for this. Um, well, early on in Act 1, there's this scene where you see a bunch of kids playing soccer by the train tracks, and the soccer ball is made out of duct tape because... This is um, a poor area, and they can't afford to get their hands on a soccer ball. But the music that they put to the scene is Mozart's Laudate Dominum, which is very kind of, you know, strings and floaty sopranos and kind of very high class. And it's such a smart choice to put a song like that onto a scene like this. Because it kind of gives this movie a feeling like even these stories are important. And even this level of storytelling for these stories is warranted and important. And like this that you perceive as like white upper class bullshittery and white privilege, that can be ours. Like... That was a really strong thing to me, to use that at that point in the movie. And then when Chiron is grown up to move on to, like, hip-hop and R&B and a more, like, real feel, you know what I mean? But specifically the way that transition was done. Because you go through this, like, it starts off as, like, this classical music sample, and that you know, starts getting, like, those hip-hop beats overlaid over it. Oh, and yeah. And then, like, that first hip-hop song he's listening to, it has, like, a sample of, like, that, you know, that classical music going, despite, like, his rough exterior that he had to, like, build up into his adulthood. Like, he still has this, like, super deep and, like, just sensitive side. And another, in- yeah, another interesting thing about, yeah... That's really interesting that you said that because a lot of the times when they're using hip-hop or R&B in the movie is when he's interacting with other people or something's happening outside of himself and he's putting on a front or um, having others acting upon him. And then when you get to these really introspective moments, it's very like sparse and there's strings and it has a more kind of what you would think of, like, Eurocentric movie soundtrack feel. Like when he's working out and listening to his mom's voicemail. Yeah, exactly. 
And you have, like, this, you know, kind of string classical music going and, like, the overlay of his mom's voicemail and just, like, clearly he's, you know... <clears throat> yeah. You know what it kind of reminded me of, to be honest? Like, um, is uh, Happy Together, which used yeah. a lot of more sort of, like, classical-style score mixed with, like, uh, juxtaposed with, like, pop music and stuff. Um, especially the Turtles' Happy Together song at the end. Um, and this film was inspired by Wong Kar Wai and Christopher Doyle's films, like In the Mood for Love, yes. Champagne Express, and Happy Together, which we've uh, talked about on an early episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, how do you two think this film took sort of like uh, some of the ideas and expanded on them to make it make it its own um, and a uniquely different experience? Uh, I think you could really see it in like color choices, mm-hmm. uh, cinematographic choices, um, the the feel of the movie kind of comes across in the same way. Like Happy Together had like those beautiful, beautiful establishing shots, and really kind of like the way that they framed their characters cinematographically, I think I'm using that word correctly, in a more <laughs> introspective way. Cinematopoeia. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think <clears throat> this, movie, this movie does kind of also give off that kind of feel. Yeah. I mean, I think... It's very clear... That Barry Jenkins is a Wong Kar Wai fan. (laughs) Like, the influence is just... He's admitted it, too, so it's not like... Yeah. Like, the influence is clearly there. It's like, when I saw uh, Midsummer, and, like, there was such a clear influence from Sergei Parajanov. It's like that same thing. Like, you know, it's definitely his own. Like, it is absolutely 100% Barry Jenkins' own. Yeah. Um, My God. You know, but it's I like it. if, but like yeah, it's Keep like going. it's very obvious he has seen a lot of Wong Kar Weiss films and like really absorbed a lot of the things that are done in those movies, and it it's just wonderful. Like the way that he uses those colors in particular against like you know black skin tones and like the oh, way he uses the, those colors the, to like especially oh, the, like the blue, yeah. you know. Uh, especially yeah, going exactly. off of blues and yellows and yeah, the way they highlight the faces in this movie is very captivating. Yeah. You know, Amelia, I still haven't seen Midsummer. <laughs> we went to call. We went to the college where Ari Aster graduated from. Did y'all really? Yeah, he was there. Yeah, what when I started going to college? That's crazy. So, um, shame, shame. Yeah. <laughs> you I probably hate that, Macklemore, does that too. That, does that mean when that y'all could big... one day make your own Midsummer too? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, one of these days I'm gonna have to do a video with you, Amelia, 
about what I think Midsummer is about based oh my God. on what I've seen. And you're yes. going to have to tell me how wrong I am. <laughs> I love this idea. Can we make that our promo? <laughs> <laughs> No, I'll I can't. Just, I'll just do it now, and you can cut it into promo audio. That's <laughs> fine by me. Hi, I'm Ro. I am all of Kayeka. There's no one else. It's just me. This is the promo. Promo done. Um, I kind of like. Um, Wong Kar Wai has been kind of like accidentally influential to like more independent gay cinema, and I'm all for that. Um, because I think Happy Together is great, and the more films we get based like inspired inspired by like the style of Happy Together versus, say, the style of Eating Out Five, uh, I or Stonewall. <laughs> I think I I think that's a lot better, and you can definitely tell that like inspiration is like very much taken something that he likes and made it completely into his own thing because uh i don't think anyone would watch this movie and get it and they might go like oh this is kind of like but they wouldn't like mistake it for the real thing it's not like um like a one-to-one uh copy or anything um Mm -hmm. But I do think that the thing I appreciate most about this film is also the thing I kind of hate about Brokeback Mountain. <laughs> there, oh? There's a lot of quiet scenes uh, in this movie, but mm. unlike Brokeback Mountain, it uses the silence to kind of boost up the emotions and the development of the characters. Um, I think the silent scenes in this film tell a lot more <laughs> than <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but this movie well, doesn't and have I think a lot of <laughs> a lot of that has to do with the fact that this movie mm-hmm. is way more introspective than Brokeback Mountain is. Yeah, Brokeback Mountain is basically just sensationalized, but they're cowboys and they're men. Whereas this movie is really like a real look into a real person's life and their very real experiences. So it's a lot more introspective. I don't know what and you're talking the, about. The like those silence, those cowboys into that. Those cowboys went inside everything. The, the other cowboys, their fake wives, <laughs> beans. If that's not introspective, I do not know what is. Um, okay, well let's let's actually ask a, a, a different question. Um, since this is based on real people and their lives, uh, let's compare it to not Stonewall. Uh, let's compare it to "I Love You, Philip Morris," which uh, we watched last week, um, which is also a character study on a real person. Um, and I could draw, like, some very shallow, like, comparisons to the characters and stuff like that, but it there's two completely different movies. Um, but I want to talk about the portrayal of the, of the characters and the real people. Uh, so how do the portrayal of the characters in this movie differ from 
I love you, Philip Morris. Character development. <laughs> yeah. And we, all, we also talked about last week about how I love you, Philip Morris, is more of, like, a study in, like, comedic realism. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Where they were trying to strike that balance between, like, real person Jim Carrey and, like, sensational comedian Jim Carrey. Whereas this is more of a look, like... This movie is about a story that nobody would have otherwise told. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? This It's a real story that is more accessible to a larger swath of people. Whereas I this Love You, a- Philip Morris, is a very, like, specific story about a very, like, specific sort of relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, and I think... Um, yeah, I just agree with that. that <laughs> I was like, is there anything I have to add? No, I just, I agree with what you stated. <laughs> yeah, you just say the same thing in a slightly different way. That's like podcast 101, Amelia. Let's go. <laughs> so, um... If you had to choose, I, I know it's hard because there's so many good performances in this movie uh, to choose from. If you had to choose your favorite uh, character, and unfortunately I have to split uh, Chiron into three people. Uh, if you had to pick your favorite character from this, uh, which one would you choose? Chiron's mom. Paula. Um, I'm tempted Uh, to agree with you, but I really dig, like, kind of silent, brooding, adolescent Chiron, Mm -hmm. who, like, just finally loses his cool and gets pushed over the edge. Like, that I found really relatable, but, like, also, like, Naomi Harris is just amazing. (laughs) I yeah. want I want to see I want to see a shot for shot remake of the scene where he just like gets his revenge on the bully but with Roe. <laughs> <laughs> make it make it <laughs> It'll be exactly the same except I'll just pick up the chair and go yeet. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my favorite was actually uh, Teresa by Janelle Monet, and um, I'm not going... Yeah, Janelle Monet's in this movie. What the heck is up with that? She's, like, amazing. She can do everything. I have I have qualms with her music career, but, like, she's just so good in this. Like, and I know she's acted in other things, and I'm very... It makes me want to go seek out the other movies she's been in. Except maybe Idlewild. I, I've heard very bad things about that one. Um, Idlewild was the Outcast musical. Ah, that's those are words I don't like hearing together necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to feel about that. Outcast musical? Yeah, the the band out or the the duo Outcast, Andre Three Thousand, Big Boy. Oh, okay, yeah. So that is, is the what musical, I thought you said. Is the musical by them or about them? It's by them. It was their last album before they broke up. 
Uh, I have, to be honest, my knowledge of Outkast is fairly limited to like their four or five biggest songs, and then like that one song that Andre Three Thousand did with Beyonce back in the day, like. Yeah, what, that's about my knowledge. <laughs> you don't remember Class of Three Thousand? Wasn't that like in your age range on Cartoon Network? Okay, no. you have to realize that I grew up with like no cable TV and like like the most daring thing that I listened to was Radio Disney. Like until I thought you were about to say Radio until about, until about high school. <laughs> But you're about to say Radiohead. I'm like, that's a hot take. <laughs> yeah, uh, in middle school and high school, I was just like balls deep in Korean pop music. So like, <laughs> I I didn't watch. It, I just knew of it because I was. I think I was watching like reruns of Samurai Jack, and like the promos came on. And I'm like, this looks horrible. Um, so. Um, so, obviously, this movie um, sort of benefits from the, from sort of like the looking at characters and the types of masculinity and how it influences, uh, how, that, how that influences people as they grow and develop and who they become uh, through their experiences, not only with that masculinity, but in general. Uh, we often see in this movie, like, um, Chiron being portrayed, you know, called uh, faggot, and basically just, like, um, sort of, like, feminized in a way, like, dehumanized, put down, seen as a lesser. So, how do you think this movie would have changed had he actually been sort of like portraying some of the traits that he was being accused of, like being more feminine, being gay. Uh, I mean, I think, I think his life would have been a lot rougher, right? Because I mean, if that's how it was just with like a little bit of not even femininity, cause like he, yeah, there wasn't really anything about him that I would consider particularly feminine, but if there was actually, like, those feminine traits, I think it just would have been worse for him. Um, yeah. Yeah, I honestly think it, it it would be hard to speculate because the the experience is so different. Yeah. But you secretly do want him to... Uh... Talk about someone trampling over his peonies. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> that TikTok uh, callbacks for days. Up, by the way, <laughs> you know, I may not know what peonies are, but I know, I know bitch, bitch when, when I, I see, see one. one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. Yeah. Um. So. What was your favorite part of this movie, if you had to choose one? Like, it can be a scene, it can be, like, a chapter, uh, whatever, like, you want to sort of emphasize and take away from this film. 
I think that last shot, honestly. That final shot of him, like, just, I guess, in his head going back to, like, being that little kid standing all alone in, like, the moonlight facing out over the ocean. Yeah. I think going back just a little bit further, when Kevin is walking back from the jukebox in the diner with that banging song on, knowing that he just served Chiron, like, the most, like, amazing plate of beans and rice that he's ever seen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I don't know, there's, there was a, there's an energy there, you know what I mean? Like, I think I even said in my notes, like, I wonder, like, how did they direct this movie to maintain such consistent performances between the three Chirons and the three Kevins. I, I think I remember, the, I, I think I remember an interview with uh, uh, Barry Jenkins and like, he was very adamant that none of the actors from like the younger, uh, like the younger actors, mid actors, the adult actors, none of them were to like interact with each other, and they just all yeah, I kind of like that. they just all just yeah. kind of like develop the same sort of like style and mannerisms, which I think speaks to his his like skill as a director. Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, to like be a fly on the wall of the production of this movie, like I feel like I would learn so much. You know what I mean? Especially from the standpoint of a director, because, like, to be able to pull those performances out of these actors and to, like, get such, like, a real and down-to-earth feel and to get such consistency between the three chapters and, like, the characters, like, really speaks volumes to the level of production of this movie. This is only his second film. Really? Yeah. yeah. That's, like, not even fair. <laughs> I haven't even made one film yet. <laughs> All right. Lord well... knows we keep trying. <laughs> <laughs> the film after this, if Beale Street could talk, so good. That's... And it's a completely different style. <clears throat> All right, well, I think I know the answers to the next question, but, you know, let's go ahead and go to the summary. So, Amelia, did this movie make you want to explore your sexuality under the moon or start a family in Miami? Ew. I mean, obviously I'm choosing Miami. I can't even get that out. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I would watch this movie a hundred times over. Watch it. It's one of the best films of all time. Watch it, watch it, watch it, watch it. Weren't we literally just saying before we recorded this movie that the only way that Florida could redeem themselves is to push Boca Raton into the sea? Yes. So, and Ro. It's a, a literal, actual, factual statement that they should. So, Ro, does this film make you want to have breakfast with Janelle Monet or start a family in Miami? Nope, it's trash. <laughs> Never gonna watch it again. <laughs> I hated it. Start to finish. Total crap.
<laughs> really bad. <laughs> anyway, Don't that's what we think. Movie. But if you've seen this movie or end up watching it later, we'd love to no, hear your thoughts. Not, and your... That's not what I think at all. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what you really Actually, feel. <laughs> Actually, this is a really good movie and everybody should watch it. It really is. <laughs> So, uh, what do you think about this movie, Sean, from one year ago? All right, so I, I liked it, to be honest with you. I think that it's a really neat exploration, in particularly of black masculinity. That's the part that I liked about it the most. Uh, black masculinity, black vulnerability, and just what it's kind of like to grow up in that kind of manner. I really appreciated that. Back to what you were saying about uh, Juan being like the father figure, right? This is almost like a subversion of what people expect when it comes to certain facets of black cinema. You know, that's something that we don't really talk about that much, which is usually like a lot of the movies kind of have deadbeat dad sort of things. And he sort of just steps up to be Juan, or Juan, to be Chiron's father figure. And not only does he do that, but he teaches him that it's perfectly okay for him to be gay. He teaches him how to swim. It's pretty cool, actually. I, I really like how they handled that and just did not fall into certain Hollywood tropes. One of the things that I find very comforting is actually the ending of the movie. It's where uh, Chiron uh, just confesses to Kevin about that's the only man that's ever touched him. And Kevin is actually quite comforting and soothing about it. It's very, uh, it's very sweet. And I think that that's another thing that actually separates this from certain things that someone in the mainstream might expect from queer cinema. Like, this is a movie that explores queerness, but it's not really that interested in, like, I guess as, you know, the heteros would say, like, shoving it down your throat. Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? I just It's just one of those things that I, I find fascinating, is that it's just we get all of this through the emotions that Chiron has. It's, it's just such a great movie. It's a great coming-of-age story. And you just don't see that many movies, especially that make it into the mainstream, that are that's through a black lens and having black characters. You just don't see it very often. Anyway, that's what we think. But if you've seen this movie or end up watching it later, we'd love to hear your thoughts and your experience with it. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Gankapod. That's G-A-Y-E-C-A-P-O-D. While you're there, why not suggest a movie for us to watch in the future? We're always looking for new suggestions, and we can't wait to experience more movies with you. I'm Mito Kitch here to remind you that, oh shit, you guys, we've made a huge mistake. We were supposed to cover La La Land on this episode. Oh, fuck. Oh, no! Oh, wait, La La Land is a gay movie? I mean, it's a musical. Oh, true, true. Then it's gay by association. (laughs) Later.